Previously on the Fulcrum Radio Show. And that's what called, like somebody said, it was like over into the night, somebody pulled the plug on a bathtub and the water disappeared. And others said, oh, it was an aquifer. And when it happened? It was overnight. Uh, that drain is actually intended to, primarily to drain agricultural lands to the north of Hazeldean Road, outside the, uh, uh, the Upper Pool Creek wetland. But it does flow through the Upper Pool Creek wetland and then out through Stittsville. Sure. Uh, the Beaver Institute is a nonprofit that was uh, established here in my home state of Massachusetts back in 2017. And I founded it with the goal of trying to raise awareness and about the value of beavers on the landscape and to help spread knowledge about ways that we can manage uh, to keep them on the landscape and resolve conflicts. Hello, and welcome to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. This is the third episode in a special three-part investigative series on the City of Ottawa's yearly trapping and killing of beavers. If you haven't yet listened to the first and second part of this series, go back and listen to those two episodes, and then come back and catch up with us after. The city of Ottawa traps and kills beavers every year. Last year, the city of Ottawa spent more than $150,000 on trappers. What seems like it could be a very simple story is actually an incredibly twisted and wild tale where there seems to be a lot of conflicting viewpoints. The story first came back into the spotlight when an article on September 27, 2021 was published in the Stittsville Central by Leslie McKay. The article was titled, The City of Ottawa Needs to Stop Killing Beavers. Now, throughout this story, we've met with Rob Grant out near Leicester Road, Donna Dubray from the Ottawa Carleton Wildlife Center, We've been traveling along the Trans-Canada Trail with the Stittsville Landkeepers, that's Anne Swanwick, Leslie McKay, and Catherine Clysdale. We also met Nick Stowe, he's a planner with the City of Ottawa. We've met Glenn Gower, the City Councillor for Stittsville. We've spoken to Ken McRae, who knows the land better than anybody, and Mike Callahan from the Beaver Institute. In Massachusetts, he knows more about beavers than anybody. Now, here I am, happy to present the final installment of the Fulcrum Radio Show's special investigative series. This is part three of the Ottawa Beaver Killings, and we're going back to Stittsville with the Stittsville Landkeepers. So okay. is, is this land not protected or no. no? No, it's a provincially significant wetland. Oh, what do you mean that he said it was protected? It is not protected. Well, it's, Glenn told me it was protected. Well, it's Had not. the highest protection. No, 
No. So who told you it was protected? Glenn Gower. Glenn Gower. He's a city councilor of Stittsville. Yeah. Designated significant wetland. It is not protected. He said it had the highest protection no. possible. No. No. So it, it, it only has wetland designation. It does not have protection status. No. But what again? What is this trail? This is the Trans Trans Canada Trail, the old railroad bed. But it's not an official. It, it's not uh, who. Well, if you uh, if, when we go back, I'll show you a sign at the beginning of the trail mm-hmm. that identifies it as the Ottawa Carlton Trailways. Yeah. This was put up by the city in 2014, and you read it, and it, this was here before. Yeah, this has been here forever. The sign basically says, you know, motorized vehicles, blah, 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 blah. And most people say, oh, well, I don't, and, and don't read any further. Buried at the bottom is a statement that says, this is the site of a future transportation corridor. And use of this trail can be rescinded at any time. Now, here's Mike Callahan again from the Beaver Institute. And just to kind of touch back on like restoring wetlands, essentially, why would that be a good idea? Uh, well, wet, wetlands traditionally by uh, European standards were felt to be wastelands and uh, they were felt they there nothing good came out of them because insects or uh, snakes or whatever, you know, and we didn't like them. And once they were drained out, you know, once people c- cut ditches in them to drain them out, it was valuable farmland, you know, for the reason that these beaver dams have been collecting sediment. So that made the best farmland. So, um, so traditionally, and there were even government programs uh, to drain out uh, swamps to turn them into farmland. The problem is, is that nature evolved with beavers and with these wetlands. And so, like I mentioned earlier, these wetlands support all sorts of bio, uh, different species and biodiversity. So when we lose that habitat, we lose the wetlands, they, we lose the, all that, uh, natural wealth of biodiversity you know beaver ponds are comparable in the biodiversity support to coral reefs and rainforests that's how productive these quote-unquote swamps are you know they uh, they really are valuable because they create so many different niche habitats that support so many animals and and other species so so from that point of view alone they're valuable but then like we talked about they're also valuable for um, replenishing our ground aquifers for drinking water then for purifying the water when water runoff has pesticides or fertilizers in it and it flows into these wetlands these beaver ponds the plants and the microorganisms in the water remove a lot of those um, nutrients and a lot of those um, pollutants, including heavy metals. They'll chelate them in plant tissue and in the sediment. And so the water that's flowing out downstream of the dams is pure and cleaner and healthier. So there's just, you know, and then 
you know, we talked about wildfires, you know, and the benefit of having a wet area. I've seen pictures where the whole aerial views of this huge charred landscape with just this ribbon of green in the middle of it, which was because there were beaver dams holding water and water doesn't burn and those plants and the land was wet. And so that uh, it saved that. So, uh, you know, we need this and with climate change, more important than ever um, to try to restore and maintain our natural heritage so that we don't lose it forever. Now, for anyone that's concerned about tree damage, is there a, a way to deal with tree damage? Beavers, beavers are vegetarians, and so they will chew down trees to eat the bark and the leaves and twigs. That's uh, they can digest those for food. There is it's a it's simple to protect specific trees. You're not going to protect a whole forest, but when there are mature trees that are specimen trees or trees you don't want to be chopped down because it might hit something like wires or a house, you, it's a very simple matter of putting wire mesh around the base of the trunk of the tree and you know, just like two inch by four inch mesh. And there's examples of that on the Beaver Institute website. Uh, beaverinstitute.org and takes like five minutes and you can protect any tree and it's 100 like percent effective um, we make them the mesh four feet high just so if there's snow the beavers aren't on top of the snow and able to chew a tree but um yeah so that trees can be protected that way there's i haven't done it myself but some people will mix sand into paint and i know and paint that on the tree trunk up about four feet and the grit of the sand will discourage the beers from chewing too if someone doesn't want to see wire around the fence you can match it right to the color of the tree but uh yeah so trees you know trees definitely can be protected when there's specific ones you want to protect what are some of the successes of uh, cities who you've seen better adapt to live with beavers? Oh, there's a lot of successes. I mean, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've, I've installed over about 1900 of these devices. And I think the best example and the town that has had the most success is the town of Bilrico, where we did that study, the 20 year study. And, you know, they, at when in two, 2000, when I first started working there, I mean, that, that poor town had so many beaver problems. They have two, two rivers that flow through this, through the town. It's about 50,000 people. And they have a lot of development in, uh, you know, along the waterways. So there was just tons of issues. And, but we've been able to, by addressing specific sites and with the 43 devices we have in the town, you know, things are pretty stable. It's unusual. Now, maybe we get one new problem a year on average. Um, and, you know, there are those dozen sites that, the devices we either tried and didn't work or just knew that they wouldn't work. So we managed 12, 12 of the 55 with trapping, but, uh, the, but the rest are, you know, say the flow devices are saving the taxpayers a lot of money. And here is Nick Stowe again. Remember he's the city planner. 
Mm-hmm. Are there any uh, wetlands throughout the city that haven't been evaluated yet? Yeah, of the as I said, we've got about 420 uh, square kilometers of wetlands in the city. About half of those have not been evaluated, or they've been evaluated and been found not to be provincially significant. Okay, what would make or what would determine a wetland not to be provincially significant? Generally, it's the size. Um, it's uh, so wetlands are evaluated according to a provincial evaluation system, a scoring system. Um, size of the wetland is probably the most important factor in determining the score. Uh, next would be the presence of any endangered or threatened species. Um, and then there's a bun- there are a number of other factors. Uh, what are the hydrological functions of it in terms of flooding and, and uh, mitigation of flooding, uh, other biodiversity uh, measures. Um, but the biggest one is, is size. Larger wetlands tend to score high. Smaller wetlands don't tend to score so high. Now, let's see what Ken McRae has to say about that. There's no question Ken knows more about this land than anybody. Now, when, uh, where are we in relation to Pool Creek? Okay, Pool Creek is way... It's, it's about... Uh, five kilometers or so okay down the trail like to the the east oh okay well like west ridge road would bring you the beginning of uh, the trail over there yeah oh okay because i saw uh, 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 the stittsville landkeeper they showed me another sort of uh drain system over there that similarly looked like it had water issues based on uh sort of the incline the water would only flow one way and it had to be it had recently looked like it had been tampered with to ensure that it would continue to go in one direction and seemingly you know it okay would... was was that at the observation deck yeah where the outlook is yeah yeah okay so the uh back in uh well for many 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 years there was a uh a concrete box culvert under the trail there that the uh railway had put in when the railway was built back around 1870 and uh, uh, then uh, the uh, uh, at some point in time uh, that culvert collapsed now whether or not that was uh, by itself by just aging or if somebody made it collapse I don't know Hmm. Like, there are a number of other concrete box culverts under the trail, but they haven't collapsed, so one has to wonder. But any, especially given that Stevens Auto Wreckers, the property owner on the south side of the trail there, uh, they uh, uh, very significantly altered the uh, uh, route of uh, Pool Creek going downstream there and uh, destroyed part of the wetland and uh, they were uh, charged uh, by the uh, the Ministry of uh, Natural Resources at that time and uh, they uh, had to pay a fine and uh, do significant uh, rehabilitation work. Mm-hmm. Which is common around a lot of property owners around these wetlands. Un- unfortunately there are a number of them that have uh, uh, made the Uh, illegal uh, site alterations. Now, let's go back to Nick Stowe for a second. 
Can you tell me about the Blanding's turtle? Sure. Blanding's turtle is a uh, nationally and provincially um, threatened species. So that's the second level, uh, the most threatened, uh, or the most uh, highest level of, of species at risk is endangered and threatened is below that. So Blanding's turtle is a uh, nationally and provincially threatened species. Um, it's relatively common in the Ottawa area, we're fortunate, and its habitat is protected under the Provincial Endangered Species Act. Okay, are we at risk of losing any more of those with some of the drainage throughout the city? Uh, I would not say uh, through drainage. The biggest threat to Blanding's turtles is road mortality and possibly then poaching. Um, habitat loss, their habitats um, are a wetland that supports Blanding's turtle is, is normally provincially significant. Um, we don't tend to lose a lot of habitat that way, but we do, uh, but they do see a lot of mortality on roads. They're a species that travels quite a bit. Well, I've certainly seen them trying to cross the road. It, common throughout the valley pretty well, right? Well, you're probably thinking of snapping turtles and, uh, and map turtles. Snapping turtles in particular you'll find on roadsides, but Blanding's turtles uh, also, uh, also do venture onto roads quite a bit. So do any of these drains uh, where they may have diverted some water away from where it originally sat, mm -hmm. Could that play into a factor why the province wouldn't consider that area provincially significant? Not sure I understand. So, like where we have a drain, say yep. a Kizzle Drain or a Hazel yep. Dean Municipal Drain, mm -hmm. um, could something like that, that infrastructure, uh, allow for? the province to say that that wetland isn't provincially significant? No, it works, it works the other way around. Um, the, whether or not the wetland is provincially significant would affect um, uh, any kind of uh, design of infrastructure functioning and maintenance of the infrastructure. Here's Mike Callahan again. Now, there is one a, a limitation of the pipes. Um, that if it's something that's a river, we're not going to be able to pipe it. Basically, the pipe has to be big enough so that any water coming into the area can get out through the pipe. So usually we'll use anywhere from an 8 to a 15-inch diameter pipe, and that will be sufficient to manage the flow. But there are instances where we've had to use like three 15-inch pipes because it's a real heavy flow. Um, but the shallow... the the less water we have to move, the the shallower we can kind of make it work. So, and and so when you install these pipes, does that reduce the risk of say the dam bursting? I believe it does because what it typically will do is it'll draw the water down below the top of the dam down to a level that we need to protect the butters, and by having the water lower on the dam. You don't have the uh, water overtopping the dam in a big storm as frequently and potentially eroding it and causing a blowout. Um, you, you know, beaver dams are made from mud and sticks and rocks that the beavers gather in and build. So then it's not concrete. So they are, they can um, burst 
and it's pretty uncommon, um, but they can happen. It's more likely to happen if the beavers are trapped because the beavers maintain the dams every night. They'll uh, swim along them to, and try and detect leaks. And if they detect a leak, they'll patch it up. But if the beavers aren't there, um, then those leaks can expand and then you could have a dam blowout. So, uh, yeah, the best you want beavers maintaining those dams to reduce the risk of that happening. So in the case of like somebody calls you and they have a blocked drainage or a culvert, what's the best way to deal with that? It, every site's different. That's one of the things I like about this work is that when we build a fence on a, a culvert or put in a combination of a fence and a pipe, um, we are customizing it to that specific site. And so what I tell people when they call is that the first step is for us to look at it and just do an assessment for what's, what's going to be the best option there. Cause there are like f- at least four different types of devices that we could use for, to protect road culverts and that without seeing the site or somehow assessing it, um, we're not going to, necessarily know the best option um but i will tell them that when it's a road culver or a retention pond any man-made structure man-made dam with a spillway beavers like plugging those two any man-made structure that moves water it's rare that we can't protect it from beavers nick stowe again so what role does wildlife play in the future that we're building here in Ottawa? Well, we, we, uh, one of the city's primary environmental goals is to maintain uh, the city's biodiversity, um, you know, for, for all kinds of reasons. But, uh, you know, we know that biodiversity is one of the keystones to uh, the functioning of the ecosystems that support us all. And how important are trees to that biodiversity? Trees are, are extremely important. Uh, uh, you know, the, uh, they're an extremely part, uh, important part of both the urban and the rural ecosystems. Now, are, are we losing too many trees in Ottawa right now? Yes, we are. Absolutely, uh, particularly in the rural, or sorry, in the in the urban area, um, we've seen massive impacts of emerald ash borer over the last five years. Uh, we have um, number uh, large number of urban trees that are reaching the end of their healthy life, and so will be need to be replaced over the next uh, you know the next twenty thirty years. And we do have a, a natural tension between the city's goals for intensification, which we need because uh, you know to be a more environmentally sustainable city. There's a tension between that and uh, maintaining, uh, retaining, and planting uh, urban trees. Here's Ken McRae. Do we know what they were altering the land for? Uh, I would expect that it's uh, some sort of uh, pre-development effort 
but uh, they're thinking that uh, if they can, uh, well, a, a lot of uh, landowners, uh, they try to uh, get rid of, rid of anything that's, uh, that could be possibly considered to be environmentally significant uh, that might interfere with them uh, wanting to get their uh, lands rezoned to allow some sort of development and uh, so what they do is they clear cut the vegetation in some cases they uh, bring in a bulldozer and remove all the tree stumps and excavate surface soils excavate drainage ditches and then they let a few years go by and then they'll bring in environmental consultants to do studies and they'll submit a development application then after they've carried out that destruction to ensure or at least help to try to ensure for them that there isn't anything environmentally significant there left that uh, might interfere with their development plans. Back to Mike Callahan. Okay, now uh, what about erosion when we lose the beavers and like along the side of a ditch or a stream? How important, mm-hmm. how important, uh, or, or what is it about losing the beavers that makes erosion worse? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, let's go back in history a little bit. You know, when Europeans first came here, beavers were on every waterway. And beavers left to their own devices make a series of dams on these waterways. And these series of dams slow down the flow of water they let it sink into the ground and by doing that you have less erosion then the first white people that came across north america were the trappers and because furs were very valuable back then and so they wiped out the beavers because it was unregulated and then without these dams the streams just started eroding so when you know, you go out west and you see deeply incised streams. Those were probably never like that with when beavers were around because the beaver dams were slowing down that water and preventing that erosion. So now um, it's been shown that when beavers move back into an area, sediment starts building up because it's slow in the water and sediment drops out of the water. And in fact, they have... a are using a lot out west um, what are called beaver dam analogs or post-assisted uh, pals post-assisted lumber systems or something i forget but anyways they're building these like starter dams for beavers which slow down the water and they've been the scientists uh, monitoring these things have been amazed at how quickly these in size streams, meaning deep, deeply cut streams, start recovering and building up sediment. And as that happens, the stream rises, 
you know, because the ground's rising and the water's seeping into the ground higher and higher all around it. And the water table rises and you start getting vegetation coming back in. So um, with beavers, there's much, you know, it's the opposite of erosion. You're actually building up the streams without beavers. They tend to just the water just cuts through the ground deeper and deeper. Now let's go back to the Stittsville landkeepers. But one of the problems we're experiencing is these beaver stories are one-day wonders. They appear, they're gone. The Lester the Beaver story I saw for the first time on CTV 6 o'clock news. And um, knowing the city's mentality and how hard Rob Grant and his crew were fighting to save Lester. I wrote the reporter for CTV, Spursling or something like that, and I said, well, now you've basically told the feel-good story, the beaver's there, it's wonderful, the kids are excited to see a beaver, and there's a dam. I think you should also tell the other side that the city trapped and killed Lester. They never, ever did. I didn't even get a reply. You know. And this is what the city is counting on. Like the interview I did out here a month ago. Okay, it was on CBC. If you read, there's about 114 comments, you know, and there's one guy who keeps chiming in, you know, they should be killed, they're rodents and all of this. Well, you expect that, you know. But they're good for wetlands. But they, we the, need nothing, wetlands. nothing, they haven't followed up. It was a story, one day, one day wonder, and gone. This is something that has to be kept at the forefront. I mean, we're talking about, and I'm, you know, I don't want to sound like a wacko activist, but we're talking about planet survival here. I mean, everybody knows. Not wacko activists. It's true. The wackos are the ones that aren't. Um, what's going on in Glasgow, Scotland now with COP26? Exactly. You start with this, yeah, you know. That's right. um, how, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars the city has spent in just the time I've lived here sending out crews to Rush. Clear, <laughs> out be, clear out beaver dams, backhoes, trucks, workers. And then all the people that come to oversee it and say that it's okay. I phoned those guys too. The people that they hired to, from some environmental group to say that what they're doing is okay. Like, they pay those guys. But what they're doing, I mean, we found, I think it was 159000 they paid trappers yeah. in 2019. That's just the tip of the iceberg. We don't know how much came out of other city budgets, like roads, drains, and all of that, for the crews to come out. And the beaver baffles, there's hardly any maintenance maintenance to it. It has been done successfully in London, Ontario. They are, I think, and Edmonton, I think Donna mentioned Edmonton. But North America, uh, you you read... um, Vermont. Yeah, it's been done in the states. All over the states. This is not new. This is proven ways of living 
beside and with the beaver. Yeah, Glenn Gower will tell you there's two new sites that they're going that they're proposing to try these on, the, to test them on. And the thing is, <clears throat> they're not. You don't. Hey, they're not. I, I said. To, I said this to him. You don't need to test them. They're already proven. But the Ottawa Carlton Wildlife Center. I'm not sure they think these two sites are great because what they need is a place where there is a problem, where there actually is flooding and where people are. They call them conflict sites. And the city... One in the East End and they're pilot projects for the city. They're trying them for a year, I believe it is, to see what happens to the population. But they're not conflict sites. And this is why the Ottawa Carlton Wildlife Centre said, hey, wait a minute. You know, you're not dealing in good faith. Yeah. You're, you've, we've got a designed-to-fail program from the city that they'll say, oh, well, didn't work, does work, but proven the, work. Lester the Beaver site was a conflict site that yeah. they could have used They could have used it. Yeah. They this, call them beaver baffles, beaver deceivers. You know, they've got beaver uh, flow devices. <laughs> they've got several names, this, but this, they all... This is also a conflict site because the the city wants to drain it and we don't want them to kill the beavers. I mean, I guess if nobody cared about wetlands or the beavers, it's not a conflict site. And here's the city councillor for Stittsville, Glenn Gower. Okay, now uh, if I could just ask you a little bit quick about your work on council, uh, why did you run for council? <laughs> well, well, I've got to get going soon, Damien. That's okay. a, a long question, but uh, you know what? I was uh, I was a community volunteer and uh, saw a lot of things that, uh, that certainly were, were of interest to me at the city level. And uh, coming up to the election in 2018, a number of people suggested that I should uh, I should run and uh, that they'd like to see me as a representative for the area. So that's the the long story short about okay. about why I put my my name in the race back in 2018. Well, I, I appreciate your time. Can I just ask, who are you backing for mayor? Well, the mayor's uh, Mayor Watson. So uh, he's the only one to back right now because the only the uh, race hasn't even started yet. So we'll see what happens next year. Okay. Anything else you want to say? But uh, well, I mean, I think that's good. I really wanted to emphasize just that the health of the beaver population. I know. I think I mentioned earlier, but you know there are some sites where there's uh, where there's problems and where it's uh, some of the some of the simple solutions uh, haven't worked. Uh, but uh, we have a lot of healthy and thriving uh, beaver colonies uh, in the west end of Ottawa, and I am really really hopeful that these pilot projects will show success and uh, we'll be able to start having a more progressive policy for wildlife management when it comes to beavers and infrastructure. Now, Jim Watson, the mayor of Ottawa, has just announced that he will not be running again in the upcoming election. A common thread we've found throughout this whole series is tree loss. Now, back to Nick Stowe. Now, uh, does Ottawa understand nature? Uh, that's my whole job. I think we do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I what... In the case of, say, the experimental farm, uh, how many trees are we going to lose there? You're talking about the Ottawa Hospital site? Yes. So I believe the estimate is around 500 uh, mature trees will be lost on the site as the hospital is, is being constructed. 
and then um, the goal is to uh, carry out compensation so that at the end of the day, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, we'll actually have more trees and more canopy cover on site than there is now. And so how will we get that canopy cover back if we take the trees away now? Well, there will be a lot of trees retained on the site. We're losing about about 500 under the under the plan, but there will be, you know, there's a lot of trees being retained. I don't know the exact number. Um, and the the site plan and the conditions on that that were put in place uh, by the city and by the National Capital Commission um, speak very strongly to replanting the area, compensation, um, the use of, uh, of greenery on on the buildings, so the parking garage, for example. Um, so there will be a substantial replanting of trees on that site. How many trees does it take to replace a tree? Well, um, <laughs> that's a difficult question. It really comes down to a matter of time, right? Um, if, when you re remove a mature tree and you replace it with a younger tree, it's going to take probably 40 years before that younger tree develops the same, same canopy cover. Uh, we generally try for uh, an increased ratio in tree planting, so normally if a, a tree is being removed, we ask for a replacement of you know, two or three trees to compensate in the short term for that loss. Um, but we really have to take a long view here. Um, we know that the city is going through a transformation. Uh, we know that the city's population is growing. We have to accommodate that population. We don't want to expand the urban boundary because, you know, that's, you know, that's the least desirable choice. So we have to intensify, and as we intensify, that puts more pressure on urban space. Um, and that's a, that's a transformation and evolution that we're going to have to go through, and there are going to be uh, short-term disruptions in our urban tree canopy. There's no doubt about it. Is there a reason why we can't build the hospital at another place, like Tunney's Pasture? Well, the decision was made by the National Capital Commission uh, to site it at the experimental farm. Um, you know, I, uh, that decision has been made. Um, the site has now been approved for the hospital. Uh, so I think moving forward, we just have to keep the focus on, on how we best manage and design that site. Now, uh, there is a group called Reimagine Ottawa, and they, they say that we're expected to actually lose uh, near a thousand trees. Is that true? Well, I don't know where they get their numbers from, but the estimates I have seen are about are about 500. Okay. Um, well, I, is there anything else you want to say? Any closing remarks? Uh, not. <laughs> I guess I just want to, yeah, I just want to say, you know, we, the city of Ottawa takes, uh, takes environmental stewardship very, very seriously. Um, you know, we, uh, we're very committed to the protection of biodiversity, the protection of habitat, uh, and we're very, very devoted to the future of Ottawa's urban tree canopy uh, because we know all the values that it provides to us. And one more time, back to Ken McRae. R.W. Tomlinson Limited uh, that has the quarry on the other side of uh, this Lafarge one. And uh, back uh, uh, about uh, 10 to 12 or so years ago, uh, they uh, uh, 
illegally uh, altered uh, a stream flowing out of uh, one part of the Goulburn, provincially significant Goulburn Wetlands Complex into another part of that complex to the east. Uh, they uh, uh, stripped all of the vegetation away from it uh, right down to the uh, water's edge and uh, uh, they also uh, altered the, uh, the water itself like they uh, uh, they excavated the the bottom of it so uh, they were uh, charged they did that without any approval uh, that was required so uh, they were charged by the uh, Rideau Valley Conservation Authority uh, they were fined I think it was just a feather slap on the wrist of something like six thousand dollars in order to do some rehabilitation work uh, the uh, rehabilitation work uh, wasn't really all that uh, useful. They they planted uh, eight or so uh, evergreen trees and another eight or so uh, uh, caliper size uh, hardwood trees, either maple or oak, perhaps. And uh, uh, the last time I checked, uh, uh, some of those had died, so they they weren't maintaining them. And, uh, and they weren't replacing them. So there's a, a problem there with uh, uh, rehabilitation work that's ordered uh, not being properly uh, monitored and uh, ensured uh, that it's uh, done effectively uh, by uh, the government agencies. Hmm. And is there public record of those uh, trials and those decisions? I have an email from uh, the then regulations officer from the Rideau Valley Conservation Authority uh, in regards to uh, that conviction. Uh, Actually, I reported the violation and uh, had them investigate it. And are these these wetlands, are they they have a provincial uh, significance? This particular wetland here, unfortunately, uh, you'll recall that uh, map from 2005, that city map that I sent you that showed 20 wetlands, 20 new wetlands, Mm -hmm. and this was one of them. Uh, But uh, uh, because uh, the uh, Ministry of Natural Resources uh, initially had confirmed this as being part of the Goulburn Wetlands Complex. But then uh, it was decided that since this wetland is within a licensed quarry site that was approved years earlier, that they couldn't designate this as being a part of the provincially significant Goulburn Wetlands Complex. They determined at that time that it was too late to do that so they reversed that decision and and left this as uh, a non-wetland but like if you go on Geo Ottawa you can see aerial photos of this whole area from 1976 up to 2019 oh really yeah and if you go on Google Earth, you can see uh, uh, 
satellite photo images of uh, the whole area uh, from, I think it's something like 1985. Uh, now, they, they don't do it every year, mm-hmm. but uh, they just put it out a new one on June 1st of this year, 2021, which I used to report another landowner for another violation in the wetland. Yeah, what was going on with that situation? Well, they uh, clear-cut all of the uh, vegetation and excavated uh, 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 and removed all the stumps. And uh, uh, I haven't been on that site, but uh, it appears that they also... uh, bulldozed uh, the surface soils Mm. and that was uh, within a large area uh, not within the uh, well actually they did put a road across part of the wetland itself and uh, but the main large area that they clear cut uh, is uh between two parts of the wetland and uh, the conservation authorities they have a uh, 120 meter wide uh, buffer adjacent lands around all provincially significant wetlands and this clear cut that this landowner did is all within that 120 meters. And they're supposed to uh, get approval from the Conservation Authority for anything that they do within that 120 meters. And they didn't do that. Now, we haven't heard from this guy since the top of the first part of this series. Here is Daniel Buckles. He's a professor at Carleton University, a local environmentalist, and he says the city of Ottawa doesn't get nature. This, this um, piece of tree here um, really launched for me the um, my interest in tree conservation in this neighborhood. Uh, This tree used to be on a nearby street, Northwestern, and was cut down by a developer. Um, The property is actually still empty. 11 years... When was it? 2011, so that's uh, 10 years ago. Uh, The tree was cut down, the property stood by a developer to build a a new uh, residence there. Um, and um, the property is still empty 10 years later uh, and that this tree is actually uh, well over the older than Canada uh, it was um, you can see from the middle uh, badge there that uh, it was a s- sapling in 1857 um, and grew to this enormous size of a meter across uh, since that time, up until 2011. You can even see, actually, a link of chain that is from a fence 
that was attached to the tree, and the tree grew around that piece of chain and stayed in, sort of enveloped it. It's inside the, inside it. But what, like, when we lose a tree, is it easy to just plant another one? And uh, does that offset the tree we cut down? Absolutely not. There's a lot of science showing that uh, the benefits from trees to human beings, as well as to nature, increase exponentially with age. It's like a steep curve. When it's young, the benefits are minimal. When it's a tree like that tree that was cut down, that's 180 years old, the benefits are hugely more um, in terms of all kinds of things like the biomass and carbon that's sequestered by that tree vastly more uh, than a younger tree. Uh, the stormwater that it captures and filters, the air that it purifies, um, the uh, habitat that it creates for insects, mammals, birds, all of those things are much greater in a large tree than they are in a small tree. So to replace a tree like that, which was 180 years old, would require hundreds of trees that are new. Uh, and so, the, and yet the city uses a ratio of, of a replacement of three to one. Every tree that's removed gets three new trees. That's the ratio that they're using, uh, regardless of the size of the tree. And um, it's not going, you know, they don't, they're not equivalents. Um, you can't simply replace one, uh, put three trees in, new tree, young trees in to replace a mature tree. Uh, you'd have to put in 300 trees to replace a mature tree. And let's close things off with Mike Callahan. Okay, now, just want to ask, is there anything else you'd like to say? Uh, just just that, you know, often us humans, we think we're smart, right? And we think we have the answers and we have our degrees and whatnot, but nature's been doing things for, you know, millennia. And, uh, and there's nature's so interwoven and intricate that you you pluck one area and it reverberates through others so the more we can manage beavers or and do anything in the natural world and have as minimal impact as possible generally the better results we we're going to have so we have we like to say you know we work with nature um because when you fight nature and trapping beavers is fighting nature, you know, it's going against what nature is trying to do. And so the more we can work with beavers, they're great partners and they'll, it's ultimately in our benefit to have beavers around. And it's not just for the beavers benefit; it's for everyone's benefit. So, um, you know, it's important to embrace 
you know, this national national animal for all the good that it does manage the problems that it does cause, you know, because they like us, they want to change the landscape to suit their own needs. You know, Native Americans called them little people for that reason. You know, they're, they're a lot like us, and that's why we butt heads. But we don't have to butt heads most of the time. We can find that middle ground. We can coexist, and that will serve us and them the best. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me, Mike. Oh, my pleasure. And thanks for, you know, getting getting the word out and educating people about this. It's important. You've been listening to the Fulcrum Radio Show. This concludes our series on the Ottawa beaver killings. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to everyone who made this series possible. Thank you to Rob Grant. Thank you to Donna Dubray, Daniel Buckles. Thank you to the Stittsville Landkeepers, Ann Swanwick, Leslie McKay, and Catherine Clysdale. Thank you to Glenn Gower and Nick Stowe for their time. Thank you to Ken McRae for his invaluable insight. Many thanks over to Mike Callahan from the Beaver Institute for bringing us the real facts about beavers and doing his part to keep them around. We need them. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Mr. Charlie Dutille. Thank you to Haley Otten, our multimedia director. She made the art for this series. Music and sound design by Cameron Rankin. I'm your host, Damian Piper. Thank you very much for listening. See you in the new year. <laughs>